Let's bow together in prayer. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the joy of being together this evening hour, for the blessing that you have been to us already in the fellowship of your people and the worship of your great name. We thank you for the amazing privileges that are ours, that we have safety in which to worship you, that we have each a copy of your word in our hands, that we have the encouragement of older Christians who have gone far along the road of discipleship to strengthen us and challenge us. But most of all, that we have from our Lord Jesus Christ the promise of his Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into the truth of the gospel. And we pray as we open the scriptures again this evening that by the Holy Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God may be sown as seed into our hearts, that we may be receptive soil, and that in due season you will bring forth from our lives an abundant harvest, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some even a hundredfold. So teach us, Lord, from your word, as we now deliberately place our minds under its truth and our hearts under its power and our wills under all of its commandments. Help us, we pray, for Jesus, our Saviour's sake. Amen. Now, as Matt Lucas has said, we're beginning this evening a series of studies in this marvellous New Testament book that we know as the Acts of the Apostles. I'm tempted to say Gospels we know and Epistles we know, but what are Acts of the Apostles? And it becomes clear immediately we open the book of the Acts of the Apostles that in fact it is the second volume of a two-part book. The first of those volumes is, of course, the Gospel according to Luke. And in these opening verses, the author of the Gospel looks back to what he calls his first book, in which he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In some ways, it's a pity that those who first of all brought together the various individual books that we have in the New Testament decided that all the Gospels would go together and consequently slipped in between part one of Luke's story of the life of Jesus and part two, his story of the spread of the Gospel through the early church. They stuck in the middle, the Gospel according to John. And for that reason, most of us tend to think of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles as two quite different books. Like an author today might write one book and then he might write another book. But it's clear that in the mind of the author of the Acts of the Apostles, who refers to himself later on in the Acts of the Apostles in a series of sections that speak about we doing this and not just 
they doing this. And the Christian church has, almost from the beginning, always thought that this was Luke, the beloved physician. Luke was conscious that he was writing one great book in two parts with essentially one great purpose. You remember how he begins his gospel by saying to his friend, or perhaps even as some people think, his patron, that although he has not been himself an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus, he has paid very careful attention to the testimony of those who are or were eyewitnesses. Luke, we might say, was the first researcher into the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other gospel writers in one way or another were present throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. But Luke comes and tells us that he has given a very careful scrutiny to the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And it's interesting, isn't it, in that connection at the beginning of the gospel that he gives us details that obviously must have come ultimately from the lips of Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus. And for all we know, he himself had had the opportunity to interview her, to ask her about these intimate details of how our Lord Jesus Christ was born into this world. And so, as he looks back on volume one of his great project, he tells us that there he laid out for us the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the very language he uses therefore suggests that what he's going on to do and what he actually does is to tell us not just what Jesus began to do and teach, but what Jesus continued to do. And by the power of his Spirit and through his sovereign activity in providence, continued to teach the people of God in these early centuries. And so while traditionally we know this book as the Acts of the Apostles, in some sense Luke is inviting us to think of it not so much as the Acts of the Apostles, but as the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostles in the power of his Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Apostles are the Acts of the Lord Jesus who has sent them and commissioned them to be apostles. And as he continues his story for Theophilus, you can't help wondering whether Theophilus is already become a Christian, or whether Luke frames the way in which he tells the story of the Acts of the Apostles further to confirm to him the truth of the Gospel in order that Theophilus at last may close with Jesus Christ and himself become one of those who are called Christians. It's an intriguing question, isn't it? And it's very interesting that throughout the course of the Acts of the Apostles, 
there are somewhere in the region of 20 different speeches or sermons described, some in great brevity, some at some length. And so many of them focus on the message of the gospel. And so we have a wonderful array of teaching from Jesus here through the Acts of the Apostles. As he teaches the Apostles how to spread the gospel. As he teaches the Apostles how to live in a world that is inimical to the gospel and often hostile to it. And how the gospel spreads not only outwardly to the ends of the earth, but how the gospel spreads inwardly and communally as our Lord Jesus Christ so marvelously builds his church. And so the Acts of the Apostles is the story of the truth of the gospel and the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's interesting that in these verses we've just read the Lord Jesus as the Lord of all the earth, commands his apostles now to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Luke records how, as the gospel spreads, yes, there is opposition, yes, there is persecution, but nothing can hinder the growth of the gospel, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes to the very last words before he puts down his pen as it were and the last words he writes are about Paul reaching the epicenter of the world in Rome and preaching the gospel there and his last words are these without hindrance and so from beginning to end It's a book to encourage the people of God that Jesus Christ has gone forth triumphing with the gospel. That that gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And in the last analysis, nothing will ultimately stand in its way and hinder its triumph. Now in this series we are not going to get nearly to the end of the Acts of the Apostles. We are looking only first of all at the first 12 chapters as we move from our present study this evening through towards Christmas time. And I want us this evening as we begin to study the Acts of the Apostles to reflect just for a moment on the pattern of these opening 12 chapters. The first two chapters with which most of us are familiar are the chapters that describe the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to baptize the apostles and the church with the power of the Holy Spirit in order that they may be witnesses to the ends of the earth. But even in these opening twelve chapters we see a marvelous pattern of the way in which the gospel moves and the gospel penetrates. First of all, in chapters 3 through 7, the way it penetrates into Jerusalem in the face of various kinds of opposition. There is the opposition of intimidation that is overcome by the gospel. 
And then there is the opposition of dissimulation, hypocrisy within the life of the church. And that is amazingly and awesomely overcome by the power of the gospel. And then there is open persecution. Such persecution that the disciples find themselves spread all over the ancient world. And those who have, in a hostile manner, persecuted them have not realized that they have actually been the instruments in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about his own purposes for his gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And we begin to see this then in chapters 8 through 12. Beginning of chapter 8, there is a persecution that leads to the spread-eagling of the church. And we find that Philip has gone to Samaria and the people have been converted. And Philip finds himself in the Gaza desert and an Ethiopian eunuch is converted and the gospel penetrates southwards to the great continent of Africa. And then this gospel actually penetrates into the heart of the individual who had most seriously persecuted it, Saul of Tarsus. And then we find Peter himself going here and there and people are converted and he finds himself invited to Caesarea and preaches the gospel for the first time to those who are Gentiles and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they are brought to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And then as the persecution mounts and James is martyred and Peter is put in prison, we read that the Christians who were scattered have gone to the city of Antioch. And the second half of the whole book of Acts is thus set up with the gospel reaching Antioch, where, of course, Paul and Barnabas would one day be members of that Christian fellowship and sent forth to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's the story of the gospel growing, of the gospel multiplying, and of Christ triumphing, even in the face of obstacle and opposition and persecution. That's why it's such a glorious book for the Christian church in our own time and in our own place. To catch a glimpse of what Jesus Christ does by the power of his spirit with men and women, a small company of men and women. It's astonishing, isn't it? We read this this evening. It's astonishing to think that it began with far less people that are in this building tonight. What a glorious gospel this must be. And throughout the Acts of the Apostles, Luke is therefore helping us to understand what Jesus continued to do and to teach in order to draw us in as well as his friend Theophilus in that we may look to our risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, the King and Head of the Church, and say, Lord Jesus, 
in some measure among us, will you not do this again for your glory? And make the gospel work powerfully among us. And from us and through us and by us, take this gospel to the very ends of the earth. Now with that in view, the opening chapter takes us back to where all this began. And even as the English Standard Version outlines this chapter for us, you'll notice in its paragraph division, it's obvious that there are three stages to this foundational experience of the Apostles as they bid their farewell to the Lord Jesus and begin to look forward to the great day that he has promised when the power of the Holy Spirit will fall upon them. And I want to think about it as briefly as we can this evening under three headings. First of all, the promise of Jesus to the apostles. Secondly, the ascension of Jesus from the earth. And thirdly, the guidance of Jesus for the church. Now the apostles received this promise from Jesus. You remember that after his resurrection there was this period approximately six weeks in duration where it looks as though he would appear and reappear and he would spend time with them it was a kind of extended post-resurrection seminar with Jesus and as he looks back upon all that they saw him do and heard him say, one of the things he's been doing, as Luke tells us at the end of his gospel, is making the connections for them between what they had read in their Old Testament scriptures and the way those scriptures had come to a fulfillment in his own person and ministry. And the interesting thing is we know almost nothing about what he taught them in that six-week period. Wouldn't you pay a fortune to be able to go back in time into that seminar? But he must have taught them, I think, what's in the Gospels and what's in many senses also in the epistles that the Christians, the early Christians, shared. And we're told by Luke that he taught them about the kingdom of God. Yet it's interesting. It's interesting they were still not clear about what he was talking about. And you notice this in their response as he says to them, I'm going to teach you about the kingdom. And so they say, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, verse 7, for all practical purposes, you're still missing the point. Now, that should be an encouragement to us. We're not the first. We're not the first to keep missing the point. But you see what the point was. Their natural instinct was to say to Jesus, Now, now when, is we, when are we as a little community of the sons of Abraham going to enjoy the fulfillment of those glorious promises that our people have long expected fulfilled, that at last we'll be delivered from oppression and at last we will be the people. And do you notice what Jesus is saying? 
He's saying, my dear ones, your thinking is far too small. Your thinking is far too small. It's not for you to know times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you're going to receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, that must have come to them not only as an intellectual shock, it must have come to them as an enormous emotional shock. It must have dawned on them, we are thinking in triumphalistic terms. He is going to make us the people. And what he's actually saying is, I'm going to send you lot throughout Judea. And you can imagine some of them saying, we've been there and done that and look what happened. And then I'm going to send you to those half-breed Samaritans that the Jews so despise. And then I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth among the Gentile people with the message of the gospel. And I wonder if it dawned on them that the triumph of the gospel was not going to give them a nationalistic sense of triumphalism, but was actually a call to suffer for Jesus Christ as they brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. We read this in the light of the fact that there are millions and millions and millions of believing Christians in the world, and and we say, oh, well, I suppose we look back and that's exactly what happened. But if you were among that small band of 120, still a little unsure, still unclear in their understanding of Christ's teaching and gospel, there must have been something overwhelmingly awesome about what he was saying. I am going to take you, and rather than giving you nationalistic position and place and triumph over the nations, you are going to take the triumph of the gospel to the nations through suffering, through hardship, through struggle in the face of opposition, but it will reach to the ends of the earth. It's another little indication to us that our Lord Jesus never pulled the wool over the eyes of his disciples. And it's a little indication right at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles of a principle that runs through the whole of the Acts of the Apostles, and that is this. That the gospel never triumphs without God's people, in some sense, bearing the cost with Christ of that triumph. Glorious for us to imagine that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, but then you read the annals of the great missionary project of the last few centuries and you see the costliness of that to God's people. And we can never extricate these two things from one another. But those who would bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to their nation, to their state, to their city, to their neighbors, 
will only be those who are prepared for the cost that Jesus lays upon their shoulders. I sometimes think that there are two kinds of Christians. There are centrifugal Christians and centripetal Christians. Centrifugal, that which moves out, flees literally from the center, and centripetal, that which literally seeks the center. And they were centripetal Christians. As it were, let it be for us. And Jesus is saying, no, you're going to be centrifugal Christians. I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth. And that will mean in the process, I may have to turn you inside out. And I'm struck often speaking to Christian people. Struck speaking to somebody earlier on today by the extent to which that is the way of gospel fruitfulness. When the Lord turns me inside out and outside in and thus prepares me to be a fruitful instrument in his sovereign hands. So he gives them a glorious promise. And it's in that context, you see, that the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is so significant. Because these men and women, they must have realized we are nothing, we have nothing. Look at us. Ten dozen of us. None of us has any great position in this society. We are desperately in need of God to do something if this is going to be the result. Jesus who says, I'm going to send you to Judea and to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, once the gospel has taken root here in Jerusalem, promises them, I will pour out the Holy Spirit to empower you to be witnesses. God's work, as Hudson Taylor said, done in God's way, will never lack God's resources. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. So there is the promise of Jesus to the apostles. Second, there's the ascension of Jesus from the earth. A cloud comes, we're told. Verse 9, when he had said these things as they were looking on, a cloud comes and takes Jesus out of their sight. Now why does Jesus leave in this fashion? Why the pyrotechnics? Why does he not just not turn up one Sunday night? Because of course he wants them to understand that, that this is the final curtain. That all that he had said right from the day of his resurrection, don't hold on to me like this, Mary, because I've not yet ascended to my Father. That what he announced from the moment of his first encounter in the resurrection was now going to come to pass. And so he goes from them in this dramatic way in order to underline for them that now they are moving into a different stage of fellowship with him. It was a final farewell. But in some ways it was more than a final farewell. There were three of them present 
that day weren't there who had seen something like this before. They'd been with him on the mountaintop and a cloud had come and they'd heard the voice of God. And I think like other occasions in the scriptures, the coming of a cloud is a, is a, a kind of pictorial manifestation of the coming of the glory of God. It's God coming in his glory to take his dear son home. Perhaps it's even a fulfillment, or at least a partial fulfillment, of the great vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, when he sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And you notice in Daniel 7, the Son of Man who is coming on the clouds is not coming back to earth. The Son of Man is going to the Ancient of Days in splendor and majesty to receive dominion and a kingdom. And that's what this picture is saying. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is ascended. Jesus has gone to the right hand of his Father in order to receive the kingdom. And as they stand there bewildered, two men appear. It's interesting that characteristically when Luke means an angel, he says angel. So I wonder if when he says men, he means men. We often think, and it may well be, these two men were angels. But what he says is men, and when he means angel, he customarily says angel. And I wonder if this is also reminiscent of that mountain of transfiguration when Two men appeared with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, bearing witness to Christ. Could it be that God, as it were, gives them one last amazing supernatural manifestation at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and says to them, now make sure, Make sure they remember what I said to them on the mountain of transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to what he says. And so these men come to them. They're standing up there as Jesus has disappeared out of their sight. You, you can imagine that they're just standing there. And they're going to stand there forever. Gazing into the sky and these two figures come and say, he is God's beloved son. Remember what he said. Return to Jerusalem. Stay there until he pours out his Holy Spirit upon you. And you notice what they do. This is, I think, very interesting. They fulfill the spirit of the Lord's command by doing something that he hadn't specifically told them to do. What did they do? This holy huddle of 120 as they met together. They prayed. They gathered together, we are told, and they kept on praying together. Verse 14, with one accord they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So I wonder if you notice there is something of a pattern here. As the Lord prepares his people. 
to bring the gospel to their community and beyond their community to the ends of the earth. There is an exhortation to obedience to his word. There is the engagement of devoted, persistent prayer and is the anticipation that in response to the obedience of his children and the prayers they make, taking hold of the promise that he had given, the Lord will pour out his Holy Spirit upon them. In a sense, you can't really understand Acts chapter 2 unless you first of all read Acts chapter 1. So there's a promise of Jesus to the apostles. There's the ascension of Jesus from the earth and Thirdly, there's the guidance of Jesus for the church. Peter stands up. Why are we not surprised? But he's a different man now. He's by no means perfect. But he is a different man. One of the ways we know he's a different man is because he begins to put into practice the lessons he had learned in this little six-week seminar. Jesus had been saying, I want you to see how the lines that run through the Old Testament scriptures are all pointing to me. And almost out of nowhere, I shouldn't imagine there are too many of us in the room would instinctively have thought of the 69th and the 109th Psalm and put them together in relationship to Jesus' betrayal by Judas and what was about to happen. But Peter was beginning to see it. He was beginning to see those red lines that run through the scriptures that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says, now we've got to put this obedience to scripture and seeing Jesus in the scriptures into practice, brothers and sisters. And you notice how very cleverly Luke has set us up for this. He's listed the names of every single apostle. If you're one of those people that likes to count, you'll find there are eleven And Jesus appointed twelve. And as Peter has thought about this, he's brought to bear upon this situation the scriptures of the Old Testament that he now understands in the light of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for his people. And he sees, in a sense, we should not have been taken by surprise. Don't you remember how the Lord himself was not taken by surprise by Judas's betrayal? But the scriptures indicate to us, he says, that Judas must be replaced. So what do they do? They cast lots. No, actually, they don't cast lots, first of all. First of all, they say, we must identify those men who are qualified to take his place, who have been with him from the beginning of his ministry, and therefore in their preaching and in their teaching, and as they go to the ends of the earth, they'll be able to say, I saw it with my own eyes. Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. And they come down to two men who have these qualifications, and it's interesting that Luke describes one of them at greater length than the other And the first man he mentions, Joseph, is called Barsabbas and also called Justice. And interestingly, both of these names are names of tremendous honor. Son of the Sabbath, maybe. And Justice, a a righteous man. 
And yet it's the other man who is chosen. Because you see, what they've done is they've said, only the Lord knows the heart. And they've, they've put these two men forward. And by casting lots, and again Luke brings this out in the very language he uses. Verse 24, they prayed and said, you Lord know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And interesting, it's the very language that Luke had used in his gospel. And none of the other gospel writers use this language. It's the very language Luke had used in his gospel to describe the choosing of the twelve originally. And Peter is saying, Lord, just as you chose the twelve, we cannot choose the man of your appointing. You choose. You sovereignly intervene. You show us what to do. And so they pray to him. In verse 24, the Lord here is almost certainly the Lord Jesus. You show us which one of these two you have chosen. And they're beginning to understand, I think Peter especially is beginning to understand that when Jesus had said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This was a situation in which it must have looked as though the gates of Hades had already prevailed. I don't know if we can take this in. But these were the twelve Jesus had appointed to be his apostles. And one of them betrayed him. And went to his place, says Peter. Peter is now saying, we, by God's grace, look to the Lord Jesus Christ to defend his church and to build his church by the power of his word and in the faithfulness of his people. And so this chapter ends in a most illuminating and instructive way with the church saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, you defend your church. You reform your church. You ready your church for its next stage in service. And it's almost as though now the three essential pieces are in place for the church to open its heart and life to receive this glorious baptism of the Holy Spirit. They want to be obedient to the word of God. They want to have their fellowship defended and reformed by the Son of God. And they're engaging in intercession for the Holy Spirit given blessing. Of God. And God so designs, our Lord Jesus so designs these three things His people's obedience to His Word, which is the fruit of His work in us, the reformation and defense of His church, which is the fruit of His work for us, and the intercession of His people for His blessing, which is our cry to Him to keep His glorious 
promises to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you can almost see the Lord now ascended in glory at the right hand of the Father, turning to his Father and saying, They're ready now. Let's pour out the Spirit upon them. I think of an occasion, it was the summer of 1969, when I was taken out into the yard of a Highlander who owned a little craft, and he described to me how sometimes on Sunday afternoons when he was a teenager, he would go out there and the ground would be covered in black. It was the black of the men's suits as they bowed at the back of his father's little craft in prayer. I've never forgotten the melody in his Highland accent saying they were pleading for the divine blessing. They were pleading for the divine blessing. Oh, to plead for the divine blessing by Christians who are obedient to his word in a fellowship that seeks to be altogether reformed and defended by our Lord Jesus Christ. Such as we, more than 120, would surely become a vessel that the Lord would fill and take and bless and use. May we learn more and more to be that as we study this great book. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this evening. Bow us underneath its grace and power. And as we come now to your holy table, grant that the longings of these, our brothers and sisters, in ancient days may be our longings too. We ask it for Jesus' sake.